Have your Bibles. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Second Peter. We are in Second Peter chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses nine through twenty-two this morning. We're going to finish up chapter two this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Stuart's up. He's got Bibles in his hand. He can bring one to your seats so you can follow along with us. Second Peter chapter two. Peter has been speaking about false teachers, and he continues that thought throughout the rest of the chapter. So the title of my study this morning is Protecting the Sheep. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people, Lord, and knowing that you are here in our midst, Lord. You are here to speak to our hearts through your word, to encourage us, to exhort us, to convict us if need be to change us, to draw us closer into our relationship with you. Lord, we invite you to have free reign of our hearts and our lives this morning as we look to you and look to your word. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their hearts and lives to you, they're not born again today. We pray, Lord, that they would see their need to turn from their old life and turn to you today. We thank you for this time. We committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the story of a children's pastor who was giving the kids an illustration about Psalm 23. And, and he told the children about the sheep and how they weren't the smartest of animals and they needed to have guidance. And that a, a shepherd's job was to stay close to the sheep, protect them from wild animals, and, and keep them from wandering off and doing dumb things that would get them hurt or get them killed. And he pointed to the little children in the room and it said that they were the sheep and they needed the guidance. Then a minister kind of smugly put out his hands and palms up in this dramatic gesture and with a raised eyebrow said, well, if you were the sheep, then who was the shepherd? Pretty obviously he was pointing to himself. After a silence of a few seconds, a young visitor said, Jesus, Jesus is the shepherd. Well, the young minister, obviously caught by surprise, said to the young visitor, well, then who am I? The visitor frowned thoughtfully and then said with a shrug, I guess you must be the sheepdog. I like that. Pastors are often called under shepherds, but the reality of it is we are more like sheepdogs. Sheepdogs, they have a lot of responsibility. You know, they're to round up the sheep to make sure they go in the right direction. They're to round up the sheep and make sure they get to the place where there's food and there's water. But they're also responsible for warning sheep of danger and they will bark and bark and bark to scare off a predator. Well, this morning... We're going to hear from Pastor Peter, a great big sheepdog that was faithful to his flock, seeking to lead them in the right direction, make sure they are well fed with God's word and the living water of Jesus Christ. But also, Peter is faithful to bark and bark and bark and warn against predators, against wolves in sheep's clothing, those false teachers who would creep into the church. And we've been focused on this the last few weeks and uh, and the characteristics of these false teachers. We've looked at the promised judgment. Verses 1 through 3, we looked at the characteristic of a false teacher, how they secretly brought in destructive heresies, how they denied the one who bought them, denying Jesus is God, how they were motivated by greed. And we're going to look at that again this morning. And Peter then described how that judgment would come just as it did to the fallen angels, 
just as it did to those uh, before the flood, who lived prior before the flood, and just as it did to Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment would come to these false teachers. See, Peter was a true passion that he was very disturbed by the inroads the false teachers were making into the churches. He knew that their approach was subtle, but their teachings were fatal. So he felt compelled to expose them and warn the churches about them. And so this morning, as we close up this teaching on false teachers, we're going to see four things if you're taking notes. We're going to see, number one, their reputation. Number two, their retribution. Number three, their revolting. And number four, their results. Let's look at their reputation first. Look at verses 9 through 11. Peter writes, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And we looked at this last week, last time together, rather. And especially, verse 10, those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. See, the first thing we see here is that these, these false teachers had a reputation. But it wasn't good. Retired great baseball player Joe Gargiola once said after his retirement, each year I don't play baseball, I get better. The first year on the banquet 12, I was a former baseball player. The second year I was great. The third year, one of baseball's stars. And just last year I was introduced as one of baseball's immortals. The older I get, the more I realize that the worst break I had was playing baseball. What a reputation. Well, these false teachers, they had a, a bad reputation. What's the reason? Look at verse 10. Peter tells us they walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Well, Peter does not mince words, does he? We know what the flesh is. It's that depraved, unregenerate, sinful nature of man. Paul said of his flesh in Romans seven eighteen, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I, but I can't. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As long as someone refuses to fully submit their heart and life to Jesus Christ, to God, uh, that he or she is, is not saved, and they're still controlled by their flesh and by their fleshly desires. At that point, it's impossible to please God. The only fix is to completely submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because without Christ, man is unable to control or restrain himself. Let me say that again. Without Christ, man is unable to control or restrain himself. Proverbs 6.18, God speaks about the unregenerate heart of man and describing it as a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil. I mean, that's a description of an unregenerate heart, a person who is still dead in their trespasses and sins. Peter continues to tell us what an unregenerate heart is capable of. He says they have a reputation of despising authority in verse 10. Now, this is not the political authority, but a spiritual authority. In other words, they despise even the thought of submission to Christ. They don't recognize his authority over them. Then Peter says they are presumptuous and self-willed. In other words, they are motivated by the desire to live for self rather than for God. I mean, it's evident that they love themselves more than a love for God. Their favorite conversation is all about them. Everything they do, everything they say must in some way result in profit for them. It's the exact opposite of what it means to be a Christian. One who is truly born again should be dead to self and alive to Christ. 
Jesus put it this way in Matthew 16, 24. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But the truth is, we don't like to hear that today because we live in a world that is very self-centered, self-focused. Everything we do is for, for self, not only the age of self, but now we have the age of the selfie, you know? We all know what a selfie is, right? So we take our smartphone and we take pictures of ourselves. We may even use a, a selfie stick to get up a little bit higher so we get a, a better picture of ourselves. You know, the guy, he might be flexing his muscles, you know, or, or the girl, you know, she's got the, the duck face, you know, you know, or the pouty lips. And, you know. It's just plain weird. It's just plain weird, you know? You want to take a wild guess how many selfies are taken every day? A thousand? No, not 32,000. <laughs> I didn't mean to answer that, but it's a rhetorical question. I will answer it for you. <laughs> a thousand selfies are posted to Instagram every 10 seconds. 93 million selfies taken each day. I read one description of a selfie that goes like this. A selfie is an instant visual communication of where we are, what we're doing, who we think we are, and who we think is watching. That's a selfie. You know, I read also that more people died in 2015 taking selfies than those who died in shark attacks. I wonder if they're going to have selfie week on TV instead of shark week, you know. Why do we do that? Because it's all about me. And, and, and sadly, what we see today, oftentimes, even in the church, it's still all about me. We go to church so I can be entertained, so I can enjoy the songs that are sung, listen to the different messages that tell me how, how great I am and how I should live like a king's kid. And, and, and we make church all about me and my best life now and, and about God's love, but nothing about sin, nothing about the dangers of sin or the consequences of sin or, or repentance. There's an old saying that goes, God created humans in his own image and we spent ages returning the favor. In other words, we're creating a God to be like who we want Him to be. Self-focused, self-willed. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Let me say this as clearly as I can. There can be no peace, no happiness, no joy to those living the self-willed life. Until you surrender your life completely to Jesus Christ, you'll never know real and lasting satisfaction. But the moment you commit your life to Christ, the moment you repent, and He becomes your passion. He becomes what your life was all about. And there's a life change that happens. You're no longer self-focused. You're now Christ-focused. Lord, what would you have me to do? Your others focused. Lord, how, how can I minister to this person? Where would you have me to go? What would you have me to say? It's no longer about you. It's about Him. So Peter says these, these false teachers, they're presumptuous. They're self-willed. He goes on in verses 10 and 11. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. This phrase, speak evil of dignitaries, is actually a reference to demonic dignitaries. See, there's a cross-reference to this passage in the book of Jude, verse 8 and 9, that says this, For even Michael the archangel dared not bring a reviling accusation against Satan, when he disputed with him over the body of Moses, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. So what Peter's saying here is that these teachers, false teachers, who are among the people, 
They're so arrogant that they did what Michael, the archangel, would not even dare to do, and that is they would mock fallen angels, still dignitaries nonetheless. And even today, in some circles of these false teachers that are out there, you hear them kind of mocking Satan. You know, oh, Satan, I come against you, and and, and I bind you. And and they rant and they rave and they shout and they go walk them down, and and they're going to wipe out the devil tonight. I've, I've, I've watched meetings where they say things like, now, devil, we bind you, and we want you to know, and they're carrying on this conversation with the devil. I'm going, really? You're talking to the devil about God when you ought to be talking to God about the devil. That's where the power is. It's called prayer. See, when Satan knocked on the door, ask Jesus to answer it. Lord, it's for you. Don't go toe-to-toe. Don't go one-on-one. You know, they talk on wrestling with the devil or wrestling with the demon as if they're in some kind of hand-to-hand combat with the devil. Listen, I think we need to do what Michael did and put the Lord between us and the enemy. That's wisdom. Peter continues with these false teachers' reputation. Look at verse 12. He says, These are like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. They speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Next, he he compares them to wild, vicious animals meant to be destroyed. Man, don't mess with Peter. I mean, he's laying it on the line. Now, when I think of an animal that is meant to be caught and destroyed, what usually comes to mind is an animal that, that has rabies. You know, it's foaming at its mouth and it's just, just this vicious thing. And, and I looked up the definition of rabies. And it pretty much describes the heresy that comes from a false teacher, what they propagate, and how it affects those around them. I thought I'd have some fun with this, this definition because it fits so well. The rabies, let me give you that first. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, rabies is an acute, infectious, often fatal viral disease of most warm-blooded animals, especially wolves, cats, and dogs, that attacks the central nervous system and is transmitted by the bite of an infected animal. Here's my definition of a false teacher teaching heresy. An acute, infectious, often fatal viral disease of most warm-blooded false teachers, especially wolves in sheep's clothing, cats and dogs, that attack the central belief system and is transmitted by the bite of an infected false teacher. Same thing. That false teaching them down. And, and you know, they, they, they have to dispute out and they're infecting people. Peter says in verse 12, they speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. They use impressive words about things having to do with life and death and salvation and other great things, but they're really ignorant. They don't know. They don't know what they're talking about. So that's their reputation. Number two, second point there, retribution. The word retribution means punishment. Something done or given to somebody as punishment or vengeance for something he or she has done. Peter says this is their retribution. Look at verse 13. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Over and over again. Woven throughout the entire text is the fact that these false prophets have a judgment that is coming. And it's going to be severe. Understand, false teachers must face judgment, not because they're false teachers, but because they've rejected Jesus Christ. See, when Peter speaks of the wages of unrighteousness here, it's the same as what Paul says in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. doesn't matter what sin it is. Sin is sin. The penalty is the same for everyone. Sin means, we know this, missing the mark. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark of God's perfection. We've broken His laws. 
But the good news is, Paul says in Romans 6, is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think the, the apostle Paul and Silas, when they were held up in prison, and you remember that, that the, you know, there, there was an earthquake, and, and, and the, the jailer, you know, he was afraid, you know, he was going to be, have to be die for what was going on, and, and he says this to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. That word believe means to rely on, cling to, trust in Jesus Christ. But for the unrepentant sinner, though this body dies and returns to dust, the soul will immediately go to hell because of a refusal to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Peter's talked about the, the, the reward for a faithful believer. Paul talks about the gift of God being eternal life. But do you know there is a reward for unrighteousness? It's a wage. God tells us in Isaiah chapter 3 verse 11, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. What is his reward? Psalm 9 verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forgot God. Now there was a day when we were bombarded by a one-sided view of God as this angry God, ready to throw people into the open fires of hell. And you would often hear the criticism, there's too much hellfire and brimstone preaching today. I think the problem today is that we've gone too far in the other direction where there's no hellfire and brimstone preaching. It's all about preaching, about this all-loving, benign, supreme being that doesn't seem to have any opinions on the way that we live. As long as we're true to ourselves, it's okay with Him. He accepts us the way we are. You can follow that God as, as much as you want. The bad news is that's not the God of the Bible. Yes, it's true that the God of the Bible does love us and accepts us as we are, but the God of the Bible also wants to change us. He wants to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. I like what Pastor Greg Laurie said about this. He said this, I quote, Many people may may study the sermon of Jonathan Edwards as a great literature that was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But the bottom line is Edwards would not be allowed to preach it in many churches today. If he did, he would have to update it from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God to People with Low Self-Esteem from Dysfunctional Families in the Hands of an All-Caring, Non-Judgmental, Supreme Being. End quote. Listen, we preach about hell because Jesus did. I've heard people say, maybe you've heard, what's so bad about hell when I get there? All my buddies will be with me. They will party. Let me assure you. Let me assure you that if they really knew what hell was like, they would repent of their sin in seconds. Because the Bible not only teaches that hell will be a place of torment, but it teaches that it will be a place of eternal torment. You see, Jesus, in speaking of the death of the wicked, said this in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on the left, and depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus also said in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, if the sinner just died and ceased to exist as some cults teach, that would be, dead, be bad because they missed out on the glory of God in heaven. But hell is more than just ceasing to exist as some cults teach. You know, hell is, hell is, hell is, the Bible says that hell is a place where you'll be in torment for all eternity because of your sins. All eternity. Everlasting. Some say, well, well, you know, I don't believe a God of love will send children to hell. I say, you're absolutely right. God never prepared hell for his children. 
In fact, as we looked at already, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want to send anyone to hell. Men and women are in hell by choice. Therefore, they're responsible for sending themselves to hell. Yes, God does the sending, but it's because man has done the rejecting. Now we'll see next week as we get into chapter 3 that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But that is why God gave the best he had, his only begotten son, left the glory of heaven to come to the shame of this earth, to die on the cross, so that he might save you and I from the horrors of hell. Again, hell was never prepared for you or for me. Heaven was. In fact, I love what Jesus said in John 14, 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's a place God has for us as believers. Amen? So then the choice becomes yours. If you're a child of God, then you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've repented of your sins. Now you rely on cling to trust in Jesus Christ. You're on your way to heaven. If you're not a child of God, doesn't make any difference if you're a good man, a moral man, a, a, a conservative, a liberal. You're still destined for hell unless you repent and trust in Christ for salvation. So, we saw their reputation is bad, number one. Their retribution, they'll get what's coming to them. This brings us to our third point. They're revolting. Look back at verse 13 again. Again, Peter says, they'll receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime their spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So they're kind of infiltrating into the church, carousing, feasting with you, but they're, they're, they're carousing in their own deceptions. And, and carousing in the daytime speaks of not having any shame for the way they're living. They're living in extravagance. They, they project it's disgusting, it's revolting. Peter goes on in verse 14, they're revolting because they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are cursed children. Eyes full of adultery. It speaks more of a spiritual sense than the physical sense. Now we know that there is that physical sense who, you know, people who fall into adulterous relationships because they're just, they're not being smart and, and, and they allow themselves to get close to someone and they sin. But there are others that are actually looking for it and they go out and they're out of their way to find it. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. When as a Christian, you should be married to Christ, so to speak. Anything or anyone else that takes that place is spiritual adultery. God had pointed this out many, many times to the children of Israel, how they committed spiritual adultery by following after the idols and worshiping false gods. And the same sense, these false teachers were worshiping the God of money. They preyed upon people to take advantage of them to get into their pocketbooks. And Peter says they're really good at what they do. He says they entice unstable souls. They have a, a heart trained in covetous practices and are cursed children. They, 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 they're trained. That word entice there means to lure with bait. You know, it's a picture of a fisherman around a lake casting a lure in, you know, trying to entice a fish to bite. You know, if you're a fisherman, you know, you want to get that, that lure that looks just like live bait, you know, and they, they're real shiny and, and get the fish to see it and, and hopefully bite it and get hooked on it. It's the lure of all the false teaching that is so prevalent out there in the world today. It looks like truth. It's kind of shiny, tasty looking, but because people don't know their Bibles, they don't know what God's Word says, they get hooked. And, and you know, the, these lures, these, these false teachings, they're always promising people something. 
Isn't that what a fishing lure is? It's promising that fish something delicious, something good. And, and you have all those people who are trying to rip off people their, their money all in the name of promising them something good. If you give this much money, God is going to do this for you. Their hearts are trained with covetousness. Experts at greed. One definition of, of hearts trained in covetousness is that they have perfected the technique of getting what they want. Well, this goes all the way back to Martin Luther, the unbiblical heretical practice in the Roman Catholic Church called indulgences. An indulgence was a payment to the Catholic Church that purchased an exemption from punishment for certain types of sins. So if you were a Catholic, the indulgences were those uh, for those who were afraid that one of their sins might have gone unconfessed, and if they died, you know, they would have to spend extra time in purgatory, a place of, fa- of, of flames, fire, torment, and suffering before reaching heaven, or worse yet, wind up in hell for not you know, failing to repent of a certain sin. In other words, Jesus' uh, sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to pay for all of your sins. You had to cough up a little more, otherwise you'll have to suffer for, for what, you know, what sins that Jesus didn't cover. The indulgences really was a byproduct of the Crusades in the 12th and 13th centuries. In other words, it was like you know, confession insurance against eternal damnation because if you purchased the indulgence, then you wouldn't go to hell if you died suddenly and forgot to confess something. Now, when that wasn't making enough money, Years later, the sale of indulgence is spread to include forgiveness for the sins of people who were already dead. So if you, if you had, had a loved one that had died and you didn't know if they confessed all their sin or not, then you could pay up to help get them out of purgatory. It wasn't a free get-out-of-jail card, but you had to pay. They may think, Tom, you're nuts. They, they didn't really do that. They did. In fact, there's a passage from a sermon by John Tetzel, a monk who sold indulgences in Germany in the 1500s, which actually inspired Martin Luther's protest in 1517. Here's what he said in a sermon. Don't you hear the voices of your dead parents and other relatives crying out, Have mercy on us, for we suffer great punishment and pain. From this you could release us with a few alms. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods. Why do you treat us so cruelly and leave us to suffer in flames when it takes only a little to save us? Experts and covetousness, and, 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 and coercion. They need to study Colossians 2, verse 13. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave all your sins. All your sins. Past, present, and future. All of them. There aren't any leftover sins that, that you have to atone for in this unbiblical place called purgatory. Jesus paid it all. But it was a way to entice unstable souls to give up their money so they created this doctrine to make money. Again, Peter says in the false teachers of his day, they entice unstable souls that have a heart trained in covetous practices. You say, well, that's why I'm not a Catholic. Listen, we have it on the Protestant side. The prosperity teachers, same thing. They will bait and they will entice unstable souls into thinking that if they just have enough faith, give a little bit of money, they're going to be wealthy. And they dangle, dangle, dangle that lure in front of you. Have a little faith, give more money, dangle, 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 and the unstable soul swims into the pond and they're hooked and they're trapped. That's why for the Christian, now more than ever, we need to be stable. Stable means to be grounded in God's word that when you see this stuff, you know that you know. 
Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That, that word trickery of men, has a, it's a sleight of hand like, like a magician. Peter says the same thing with his enticing words. It means to trick you into believing something that's true that's not true. That's how Satan works. He's a liar. That, that sleight of hand through trickery. That's why, again, we need to be very, very careful to know God's Word and always run what any teacher says through the lens of Scripture. Because these false teachers, are, they're, they're crafty, they're deceitful, they're plotting. They're lying in wait. All comes back down to greed. That's why Peter gives the next illustration in verse 15. He says, concerning these greedy, self-willed false teachers, he says, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he is rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. They've gone the way of Balaam. What does it mean to be following the way of Balaam? Numbers chapter 22 has that, that story. But to summarize, Balak was the king of the Moabites and was afraid of Israel. He wanted Balaam, the prophet of God, uh, to prophesy God's wrath against Israel. Now, Balaam's sin was that he wanted to go along with King Balak's plan to prophesy against Israel as long as the price was right. Three times Balaam sought God in order to prophesy against Israel, and all three times he had to keep coming back to Balak and say, no, God said, no, it wasn't going to part his wrath against Israel. But Balaam's greed kicked in, and Balaam says this in, in Numbers twenty-two eighteen. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, well, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less than, 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 or more. In other words, Balaam was naming his price. So on his way to do this, God stopped him by putting a roadblock in front of his donkey. Balaam not wanting to stop, we know the story, hits the donkey three times trying to get it moving again. And suddenly God opens the, the mouth of the donkey and the donkey says, it, listen to this in Numbers twenty-two twenty-eight. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. And here's what's amazing to me. Not that the donkey talked, but that Balaam was not surprised with the talking donkey. He responds to it as something you do all the time. I mean, imagine coming home and your, your dog Spot says, You know, I'm really sick of Alpo. Would you stand there amazed that your dog spoke? Or would you immediately, without skipping your beats, say, well, that's too bad, it's all we can afford. That's what you're going to get. <laughs> that's what Balaam does. Till the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and sees that there's an angel of the Lord stopping the donkey. And had he not stopped him, Balaam would have died. And even though Balaam did not curse the Jews, he gave Balak instructions on how he could get God to curse them. He told them to send a woman into the camp to marry them, to get them involved in the pagan activities, in the sexual immorality, and God would take care of the rest. Balaam thought he could do as he pleased to make a profit for himself, but in the end it cost him his life. And that's the point Peter's making. It's agreed, you know, they're doing this for money. That's called the doctrine of Balaam. So we see the reputation, the retribution, the revolting. Now, number four, the last point, the results. Look at verse 17. Peter describes them as, Wells without water, clouds carried by tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
Peter's point is simple. The words, the teachings of these false teachers posing as pastors, offering living water, they're empty. They have nothing to offer. Their teachings are not refreshing. There's no spiritual nourishment. You can't glean from them. There's, there's no life, only blackness. And yet people are, are tragically drawn to them. It's as the Lord said in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. What a contrast to what Jesus said in John 7.37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, here's my point. In each person there is an inborn thirst for God. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself. Our hearts are restless until thy rest is in thee. And people attempt to, to find, to satisfy their thirst in many ways and they, they end up living in all sorts of substitutes. Only Jesus Christ can give inner peace and satisfaction. That's why Jesus said in John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In other words, you may drink repeatedly from a broken cistern of the world. You'll never find satisfaction. Or you may take one drink of the living water through faith in Jesus Christ. You'll be satisfied forever. I mean, this, the false teachers could not make that kind of offer because they had nothing to offer. They could promise, but they couldn't produce. Since they didn't have nothing to give, how then are they able to attract followers? Well, the answer is found in verse 18 and 19. Look at verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they are lured through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Isn't that what we see in churches today? Pastors trying to minister to people's flesh, making them feel good about living in sin and, and the sinful lifestyle that they've chosen. And they use big Fancy words like, like tolerance and acceptance and love. But in the end, they're empty words. Because only God's word can bring forth life in us. Yeah, they may promise you liberty and, and freedom, but that's never found in the flesh. Only Jesus Christ can set us free from the bondage of sin. If you don't seek Jesus, if he's not your Lord and Savior, then you'll be a slave of corruption. You'll stay in the bondage of sin. Make no mistake about this. These teachers and the doctrines are deadly. Finally, Peter says in verses 20 through 22, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her, wallowing in the mirror. In other words, it's back to judgment. It's going to be bad for them. Why? Well, because Peter says these guys had made a public profession of faith. They claimed to, to know the Lord. They knew the way of righteousness, but they turned from it, verse 21 says. They willfully and deliberately returned to their former way of living while still professing to know the Lord. That's why they're worse off. They were not ignorant of the gospel. They were willingly, uh, deliberately disobedient, disobedient to it. Listen again to Peter's final description of them in verse 22. He says, But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, 
and a sow having washed her wallowing in the mirror. Isn't that a lovely picture? I should mention at that time, dogs were not our cute little pets like we have today. They were not men's best friend. They were wild scavengers. And the dog vomits. He's rid of something that's polluted him. Instead of leaving it and finding good food, he, he eats it again. Now, I know the Bible is true for many reasons. But I can tell you that this verse in particular is very true because I have personally witnessed this just this past week. I watched my daughter's dog, Laura Bentley, vomit on her carpet when we were over. And it walked away only to return to it and eat it. And he ate it all. And Laura's gagging. She's... I have to admit, it was a little gross. And here, Peter also brings up a sour pig. Now, there was a time not too long ago that the pigs were pets, you know? They had the Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs, and a lot of people went out and bought these ugly things, and, and they were ugly, and they had the pot belly, and they were kind of hairy. But listen, you, you can take a pig, and you can shower him. You can put some nice cologne on him, and, and then make him a little, little outfit for him. Maybe a little pig tuxedo fitted just for him. little hat, you know. You can sit him down at your table and have a nice meal together. It's not nice. Here, here with the pig. Pass the sausage. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Let me tell you something. The first chance that pig gets, he's going to make a beeline from your dining room back to the, to the slot because that's where he really wants to be. Why? Because he's a pig. And he wants to hang out with his pig friends and he wants to do pig things. That's who these false teachers were like. They made a profession of faith in Jesus, vomiting out their sins, asking for forgiveness, but they returned right back to their vomit. They went right back to the mud. For a time, they seemed to be walking in obedience, but they they returned to their former practices. They had no real change of heart. And sadly, as much as they would want you to believe that their life was in control, they really were deceiving themselves. They had no peace, no joy, no relationship with Jesus Christ. They were out of control, spinning radically towards eternity in hell. Listen, that doesn't have to be any of us this morning. I want to close with this story about, and I don't know if it's true anymore, but, but a story I heard that every pilot, student pilot, was taught that uh, any bad flying maneuver may end up in a spin. And so one of the final things that they have to learn is how to recover from a spin. So the story I read was that a young pilot tells of the time when his instructor told him that he had come to that place in his training where it was essential for him how to learn how to recover from his spin. Standing by the plane, the instructor explained it all perfectly. He said, okay, now this is how we're going to try it. So they climbed steadily upward over an unpopulated area until they reached 12,000 feet on the altimeter. He says, going in the spin is very easy. You just ease the control column back and then kick on full rudder. But when the instructor told the student to recover, that was a different story. The earth was coming up to meet them at 6,000 feet a minute, and the place was shuddering as they spun around and around and around. In those few seconds, the sweat began to pour off the young student as he he's vainly fumbled with the controls, obviously doing everything wrong, until a voice quietly spoke saying, All right, I've got her. Oh, the relief of that voice as that student handed over the controls. In an instant, they were flying level again. Does this not give us a real good picture of many people today? Their lives are out of control. They're spinning down towards a lost eternity. And there's nothing they can do to save themselves. 
But through the grace of God, what they can do is give up their struggling and hand over their controls to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Listen, as we close this morning, if you're not saved, if, if, if you're willing to give up your, your spinning out of control life and ask the Lord Jesus to come into your life and take control, you can rest assured He will take control. He will come into your life. The self-willed life will be done away with, replaced with the Christ-centered life. This means, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And if you want the blessings, the contentment, the joy that God has promised from His Word, then come to Christ today. Put your faith and trust in Him today. As soon as service is over, the elders are going to come up front, and they come up every Sunday. And we would love to, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, we'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and help you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Now let me say this. If, uh, if you ever have any prayer needs, any questions about some of the, the topics, some of the teachings going on in our, in, the, in our society today, come up and ask the elders about that as well. We'd love to, to help you stay on the right track. But more so, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you, to do so today. So the rest of us, let me encourage you today, hold fast. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Stay in God's Word. Stay on the straight path. The Lord is returning soon in spite of what skeptics say. As a matter of fact, Peter will be addressing that very topic as we get into chapter 3, the Lord's return. You're not going to want to miss that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, that you've opened up our eyes to see that prior to coming to you, we were lost and our flesh dwelt no good thing. We were headed for hell. But Lord, as we surrendered to you, you took control of our lives. And now our lives are all about you. Help us to remember that, Lord, as we go from day to day, that you're all that we need in our lives. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, that they would do so this morning. They would not leave this place without becoming born again. Lord, we know your word says that as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. Lord, I pray that there be those here this morning that have not given their life to you, that they would do so this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for working in our lives. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.